Welcome to Seeking Scripture Deep Diving Bible Study. I'm Christy Jordan, and I want to help you develop a firsthand relationship with the whole Word of God. For links and graphics mentioned in my podcast, please visit the corresponding post on SeekingScripture.com. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. Good morning, siblings. Today's readings are 1 Kings chapters 8 through 9, Rabbit Trails. Did you catch that the temple was finished in the 8th month, 1 Kings 6.38, but not consecrated or open for business in how we would consider it these days until the 7th month, 1 Kings 8.2? How is this possible? Did they miscalculate the months? Nope. This passage is actually telling us that between the time the temple was completed and the time it was consecrated, there was an 11-month gap. If you're familiar with Yahweh's appointed times, His holy days that He ordained for all who follow Him in Leviticus 23, the answer as to why this took place makes sense when you realize they are bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. Let me explain. The Ark of the Covenant was to be put in the Holy of Holies in the temple, and until it was there, the temple could not be used. However, if we read in Leviticus 16, we see that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and even then, only once per year, which takes place in the seventh month on the Day of Atonement. Now, the seventh biblical month is an awesome month. One of the most emotional of the year, actually, because it contains three biblical feasts. The first one is the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the seventh month called Yom Teruah in the Bible. See Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25. It is a day of rejoicing, shouting, and blowing trumpets. Some celebrate it as the biblical New Year and call it Rosh Hashanah, but the New Year, according to the Bible, is actually around Passover. See Exodus 12, 2 through 3. The second feast day is the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 23, 26. This day is observed in different ways, so it's best to read the Bible and pray on how you are to observe it. Many folks fast for the day and use it as a day of reflection over the year to ask for forgiveness from anyone you may have wronged, etc. This is the only day the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies. And then we come to Sukkot, Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 36. This is also referred to as the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkoth, Sukkot, etc. For those who celebrate it, we end up referring to it as the most wonderful time of the year. It is a seven-day feast that ends with a special eighth high holy day. Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur are also high holy days. These are what we call the days in which we are commanded not to do any regular work apart from the weekly Sabbath. So when the text tells us that they are dedicating the temple in the seventh month, for those who know and observe the Feast of Yahweh, this should immediately make a light bulb go off. They were following instructions. I love it when people follow Yahweh's instructions to the letter, and he sure loves it too. Moving on. 1 Kings 8.66 needs to be read in different translations in order to read it accurately. Unfortunately, the ESV translation drops the ball on this and tells us that the people celebrated seven days. But other translations will tell us that they celebrated seven days and seven days, 14 in all. It is believed Solomon had a special seven-day festival just for dedicating the temple that bled right into Sukkot, adding another seven days. 
I'm not sure why ESV changed this, but it is in the original Hebrew. However, don't go tossing your ESV Bible because I've yet to come across a perfect translation. And we could do a whole post showing significant errors in every one, which I won't. Oh yes, even King James too. Many hold that one up as literally perfect. Just know that Yahweh's word is perfect, but some human translators are not. Sometimes misunderstandings happen in translation. Some verses may be filtered through doctrinal desires, and more often than not, it is a clear misunderstanding of Hebrew culture versus modern culture. However, He has given us a brain to think with, the Holy Spirit to guide us, and a world of translations at our fingertips to search and see what lines up. On top of that, we have marching orders that we need to be tested in Scripture, knowledgeable in in His foundational books, and walking in His footsteps. To read more about the biblical feast, you can click the link that I have linked to here. So, going right out of consecrating the temple, we have lots of feasting and celebration, although it began with a solemn day, which is the Day of Atonement. I can only imagine the rejoicing that took place. Also, during Sukkot, all of the men of Israel are supposed to pilgrimage to Jerusalem, so there were no doubt great crowds present for many joyous reasons. We see this taking place in chapter 8. In 1 Kings 8, 2, we're told the men are assembling for the Feast of the Seventh Month, which is Tabernacles or Feast of Booths or Sukkot, all the same thing, depending on what you call it. And we see the Ark brought in for the Day of Atonement, which will take place five days before Tabernacles. This will be the dedication of the temple. Now, the text is actually telling us a lot more than we realize. If we just have that foundational biblical knowledge that Yahweh has always meant for us to have. Do you see it in a new light now? 1 Kings 8, Solomon's Prayers In these incredibly moving prayers, Solomon is not using the generic Lord or Adonai that most Bible translations show. Instead, he is using Yahweh's personal name. My Bible uses in all caps, LORD, and this is where it was originally Yahweh. You could pronounce it differently. That's fine. We've been over that. I think it's important to know that, though. We are reading some magnificent prayers to the Father, and it makes them even more personal, powerful, and moving to know that Solomon was using Yahweh's personal name. The entire prayer is impactful for any believer. But I want to point out a few key things. In the middle of Solomon's impassioned plea, he naturally flows into this. 1 Kings 8, 41-43 Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they all hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Wow, folks, do you see that? That is Solomon praying for all those who are not genetically Israel. He is going to Yahweh and praying for his people first, just as Messiah did, and then the Gentiles. Y'all, this is Solomon praying for us. I want to encourage you to read that entire prayer again and realize it's being prayed over us. 
Of course, we can see that this is part of Yahweh's plan and has been from the beginning of time. But to see Solomon praying a prayer and including us in that, in his time, is truly inspiring. There is another important sentence that I want to point out because we see Solomon making this statement in this prayer, and it's a statement I hear a lot from believers today. 1 Kings 8.46 If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Now, I encourage you to read that entire passage, of course, but the key part I want to focus on is Solomon's admission that no one is free from sin. In our day and time, many would just say, See, I told you we're good, and close the book and go about their day. You see, we use this no one is free from sin as an excuse not to even try to be. It's our get-out-of-jail-free card. But is this how Solomon treats it? Is this how the priests of the temple treated it? Is this how Yahweh tells us to treat it? Is this how Messiah treated it? Let's keep reading. As soon as Solomon is done with this prayer made to the Father before all of Israel, he turns and addresses Israel. Let's see what he says to them. 1 Kings 8, verses 54 through 61. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose before, from before the altar of the Lord, where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he made through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him, to walk in obedience to him, and keep the commands, decrees, and laws he gave our ancestors. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. And may our hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Moments after Solomon makes his admission to Yahweh that no man is without sin, he turns to all of Israel, including the Gentiles among them, and directs them to walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. Then he urges us to be wholehearted for the Father, and once again repeats walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. Some people say that to try to obey the commandments is to make null the sacrifice of Messiah. Reading scripture, we can see how deeply twisted that is from the actual word, but that is what we can expect from the world's view of Yahweh. Keep in mind, the world is going to try to lead you away, not closer to the Father, and we simply must test everything against the word. In this case, it tests false. And some days, that may feel harder than others, but you know what? We do the hard things for Him because He is worthy. We do the hard stuff for Him. He's done so much more for us. 1 Kings 9, Yahweh appears to Solomon again. Yahweh appears to Solomon and presents him with some very important if-then statements. These are important for us to read through and contemplate. If you, then I. 
So God always honors his end of the covenant, but a lot rests on whether or not we uphold ours. Check out these two if-then statements in our reading today. Note that an if-then statement may not always have an if and then clearly stated, but the meaning is there. Two that I found are in the verses below. Check them out and see if you see any others. The verses are 1 Kings 8.25 and 1 Kings 9 verses 4-5. through There is an awful lot of if-then in Yahweh's word, but most prefer to overlook it focusing on His promise and disavowing any responsibility, duty, or requirements on our part. Like a child playing hide-and-seek who simply closes their eyes and decides they are invisible simply because they can't see. We have this promise to hold on to. Our God is a covenant keeper to those who seek to be in covenant with Him. Test everything. Hold tight to what is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 We are saved by grace alone. Obedience is not the root of our salvation, but it is the fruit. May Yahweh bless the reading of His Word. I love y'all. Bye-bye.